From WEOS, Finger Lakes Public Radio Station in Geneva, I'm Gabriel Petrazio, and this is Inside the Finger Lakes. On this edition, we are talking politics at the federal level and how policy and civility can rise above and even surpass party affiliations with my two guests from opposing sides of the political spectrum. Joining me all the way from the West Coast in studio is former Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez from California and former Congresswoman Anne Marie Burkle as a part of Hobart and William Smith College's multi-day Congress to Campus event hosted by HWS Votes, a nonpartisan student leader group that is devoted to voter registration and civic engagement on campus. Sanchez proudly represented California as a Democrat serving on the Armed Services, Education and the Workforce, Homeland Security, National Security, Select Committee on Homeland Security Committees, as well as the Joint Economic Committee during her 20-year career. From 1997 to 2003, Sanchez represented the 46th District in California and then switched to serve the 47th District from 2003 to 2013 for that decade until returning back to the 46th District from 2013 to 2017 when she stepped down. Burkle represented New York's 25th District as a Republican from 2011 to 2012, serving on the Foreign Affairs, Oversight and Government Reform, and Veteran Affairs Committees, as well as chairing the Health Subcommittee. During her tenure in Congress, Burkle was appointed by then-President Barack Obama to serve as a United States Representative to the United Nations 66th Session of the General Assembly. Burkle then became the commissioner at the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission in 2013 until 2019, while also serving as the acting chairman of the agency from 2017 to 2019. With all the introductions out of the way, welcome Loretta and Anne-Marie. I hope that you found your way here to WEOS station here at Finger Lakes Public Radio. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, and certainly the weather's cooperating absolutely gorgeous outside absolutely it is a beautiful day and so with that being said i really appreciate you joining us on this special edition of inside the flx it's going to be a roundtable discussion today and we're going to have a really fun series of conversations on a host of different topics you are excuse me this year's civic leaders of political activism audrey platt who's a junior as well as bart lahiff who's a senior both of whom are really civically active on campus and they're organizing the campus-wide ahead of 2020 election cycle, and we'll get to that later towards the end of the program. But there's so much I'd like to talk to you about and tackle in this short time together, so I apologize if we're rushing through a few things, but I have so many questions I'd like to ask the both of you and the pairing. And so one of the things that I was really interested in talking about was transitioning from a partisan kind of lens to a more bipartisan lens, because one of the tenets of your visit here with the Congress to Campus program is talking about finding bipartisan ways to engage with people civically across the aisle and really understand what it means to serve in the public sphere. And with that being said, one of the issues I think that's really interesting and also very complicated in America deals with abortion. And so in different lights, we have issues how women specifically are not able to be represented by a predominantly male Congress and Senate. And so that has been historically the case for quite some time, making decisions on the behalf of women. And so I was interested in pulling from you both because I know that, uh, Anne-Marie, that you um, supported the, back in 
2011 House Resolution 3 with the No pa uh, Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act alongside Representative Reed and some others from New York State, which all voted in alignment with that. And actually all Republicans voted in alignment with that except for five who abstained voting nationwide. With that being said, I have a two-part question for you both. The first is, how do we bring America together when talking politically about abortion and other various reproductive health issues so we can have civic conversations? Also, as a side note, during the 2018 midterm election, Congress sworn in a record 102 women to fill seats in the 116th Congress, as you both are well aware. And I think it's really worthwhile to consider now that there's greater representation for women to actually address these issues. And my second part to that question is, and why is it essential to have women's touch in Congress when talking about this critical and sensitive area um, of policy? So this is Loretta Sanchez, and as you know, I represented uh, Orange County in California for 20 years in the Congress. So there were a lot of issues around this whole issue of abortion, or what we call on the Democratic side most uh, women's choice. So how do we talk about um, the different choices that women have in a very politicized uh, manner. I think what we need to do, as with anything else, we need to find where we want to be at the end of this. And where we want to be at the end of this is um, for abortion to be legal, for abortion to be not used very often, and for women to get to make the choice of what they want. I think that's really where we want to be. And so how do we make abortion um, not so widely happen? I think that's a very good place where in a bipartisan manner we can work on in information, on what we teach in the schools about sexual educa sex education and um, about how we put up monies to help people um, if they want to have children but to be able to have them adopted or how do we help women who decide to hold on to a child um, and, and go the full term and have a child to help them you know, get a job if they're a single woman or a woman, you know, that's where the male may not take responsibility, for example, for it. So I think those are all areas where we can work in a bipartisan manner to make that happen. Thank you. And this is Anne Marie. Um, I have actually been involved in the pro-life movement. I spent many, many years long before Congress. Um, just because of my nursing background, we were always taught before is, as nurses and healthcare professionals, that there were two patients. So in 1970, I think it was three or four, New York State was actually the first state that legalized abortion in the country before Roe versus Wade in 73. And so I just always have paid attention to the issue, and um, it is a tough issue. It's one of the, I would say, maybe the most divisive uh, issue that the nation faces, faces, and people are very passionate on both sides of the of the spectrum and I I think as you look at the issue I mean my personal belief is that it's a human life and we should protect that human life but that doesn't diminish what the woman may be going through whether it was a rape or whether it was um, you know oftentimes it's just a, a inconvenient and it's I, I say inconvenient but I mean really the wrong time just not the right time in her life it was unplanned and so those are real issues for people that need to be dealt with. Um, the one thing I, I feel strongly about is access to health care as a prof healthcare professional. That's another aspect of this, that just because we don't want to fund abortion or use taxpayer dollars to fund abortion, women still should have access 
to health care and to mammograms and to pap smears and to all of the things they need. So it's a it's a complicated issue. It's an emotional issue. But I do think, uh, as my colleague says, there's a way to figure out and find the hap- at least some of the things we can agree on as the nation. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's the law of the land. That's the reality of it. I don't think it's going to come up before the Supreme Court, but we will see. Well, there's conversations about that, too, as we've seen in the headlines recently. But I think it's, I think it's interesting because we don't see as much compromise or just in general consensus on a lot on this issue particularly but we see a lot more consensus on other issues that that we vote on routinely in congress and as people who both served as former congresswomen who have served i could see where that falls in line with caucusing and things of that sort and who you organize with to get these bills onto the floor let alone pass well there were plenty of times when i was in the congress where the Republican women would align with the Democratic women on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like, I mean, I mean a partial birth abortion was always, you know, at the extremes, but contraceptives and covering contraceptives in the health care plan for women, for example, which is very important. I mean, why is it that we, you know, in the military bills, we always funded Viagra, but we never funded contraceptives for for women. I mean, this is this is crazy. I mean, if you think about it. So there were a lot of times where the majority of the few Republican women that there were, but they would use, they, many of them were pro-choice or, or they were, you know, they, they were good on, and I say that from a Democratic standpoint, I mean, they were, they, they, they were with us on some of of the bills maybe not all of them but on some of them and that's where we tried to work and we worked on behalf of the women of america you know contraceptives i think are and i'm a catholic so i say that in a with a very heavy heart but you know if we don't want to have unplanned pregnancies or children out of wedlock or rape you know uh, children of rape etc then we have to really think about uh, what types of contraceptives we have available to women and that they are accessible to women. And I would uh, quickly comment on that. I agree that uh, contraception is not abortion, and having access to contraception is, is critical, um, and, and it should be a part of women's health and, and women's choices. And you brought up before the importance of the evolving landscape in Congress. As we saw this past midterm cycle, it was an unprecedented number of women who were elected to office 102 and then five in the Senate as well. And I was interested in asking you both now, how has it evolved since your time serving? What do you see as unique and what is currently the future of Congress and the Senate? Well, when I first got into the Congress, which was 1997, I remember Nancy Pelosi. She was um, an appropriator. She had some power. Certainly among the women, she was a leader. There were there were only 17 women. Um, we, you know, she was so excited when I got into the Congress. I was young, and she said, you don't understand. The women were really excited. <laughs> you don't understand. She goes, you're young enough to where you can get experience in the House, and you could become a president. I mean, this is because all the women who had reached the House at that point had 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 been mothers, had had their families, and then had gone on school boards and maybe city councilors or county government. So by the time they got to the Congress, 
they were already significantly in their 50s or something of the sort. And here I was coming in in my early 30s and you know they were very excited. You can get experience here, we can push you up. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I just, I, I, I was sort of dumbfounded when I heard that out of her mouth because I, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, and of course, now we see much younger women. My sister came in at age 33. At that time, she was the youngest woman ever. And now we've seen even younger ones come in. So very excited about seeing young women come in, about seeing more women come in. Um, but still, you know, it's difficult to work through the archaic system of the House of Representatives and to override the votes of the boys when they're picking chairmen and other things. It's just very difficult for women to get ahead. One of the great things about having had Nancy Pelosi as a speaker and now back as a speaker is that she has empowered a lot of women and she's put women at the top of committees and she has pushed for women and she's given a special roles in the Congress and she has really brought the women up in my opinion and i applaud her for that she's been a great leader in doing that and she has taught us how to work the machinations of the congress to our effort to our effect to be effective um even though there are more men there but until really we have an equal amount more or less i think we're still not going to see the floodgates open on issues and i don't want to say women's issues because every issue is a woman's issue I was on the military committee. Sending a son to war or a daughter to war, that's a woman's issue. That's a mother's issue, believe me. So I, I think we're not going to see real big change and real, a real dynamic of woman's input come in until we have larger numbers, even more so in the House and in the Senate. And let me, uh, first of all, agree with Loretta on so many of those points that, first of all, it would be ideal if the House had the same demographics as the country, right? I mean, then you feel like it is the people's house and they are representing the people. Historically, it has been a a male institution. When I went in in 2011, there were many women in my class. Um, So we had three nurses. We had uh, somebody who was in law enforcement. We had a number of women come in in that class. Now, we don't have those numbers now, and, and I do think there's something, it's not all bad. Some left, like Christy Nome left to run to be governor of North Dakota. Diane Black ran to be governor of Tennessee. Um, so they left for other reasons rather than just, uh, just retiring or, or losing. But it is, and I, I have to applaud, I probably don't agree with Nancy Pelosi and a lot of the Democratic women, the ones who have been there and blazed that trail, Loretta being one of them, um, on issues, on, on a lot of issues, but you have to give them credit because they blaze that trail for the younger people coming up the, through the ranks now, and Nita Lowy, uh, Carolyn Maloney, Nancy Pelosi, I mean, these women... Um, Diane Kaptur. I mean, they're just a lot of um, Marcy Kaptur. Yeah, Marcy Kaptur. Uh, they they um, they really did blaze that trail for other women and made it um, made it a, a reality for them. Which it irks me when some of these young upstarts now come into Congress and they have no appreciation of what has been done by the women who have been there for years and and so early on. That's a great point. And our conversation falls upon the heels of International Women's Day. And you were here in Geneva as well on Sunday. 
With that being said, I, I'd like to continue this conversation about representation in politics and switching gears to look at the Democratic <coughs> primary for this upcoming 2020 election cycle. Last week, we saw Senator Elizabeth Warren suspend her campaign bid from a crowded field that has now narrowed down to Senator Bernie Sanders and former Vice President Joe Biden. With that being said, Warren was one of many female candidates that competed for the nomination during this past year's primary, including Senators Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, as well as Representative Tulsi Gabbard. But I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about the gendered outcome of this primary now. We have two male, older white men who are running for the Democratic ticket. How will they compete against Trump? What is the result of the, all the female competitors essentially bowing out of the race at this point? And I'm especially interested in hearing from you specifically, Sanchez, because of the fact of your affiliation being out in Orange County with Kamala Harris's home state and being a member of the Democratic Party as well. Well, I will just say, yes, I'm a Democrat. So um, I'm, a, of course, interested in, in finding a good candidate who will... Um, uh, match up well against uh, President Trump and, in my opinion, hopefully defeat him. So, um, you know, my my favorite, I have to say that my favorite among everybody was Amy Klobuchar because uh, she's just a practical woman. I was a practical legislator. I think she um, speaks to what's going on in the heartland of America, and it's very different than what happens on both of the coasts. And I worked with her. And I felt that she was very easy to work with, that she had good ideas, and that she followed through. She's a very hard worker. So for all of those reasons, um, you know, Amy was my favorite, although all of these people are, all, all of the candidates are friends, believe me. Um, you know, Tulsi, Tulsi is actually, I think, still in the race. Um, she, I served with her. She's still in the Congress. This will be her last year there. Um, she was activated as a National Guardsman from Hawaii, and she went to Iraq, so she saw the ravages of war. Um, her whole platform has been that we, we spend way too much time in war, and it's not good for our country, and it's bad on our soldiers, airmen, Marines, etc. And I agree with her on that. We should not have been in a lot of these wars. Um, war is the last... Uh, effort that you take when nothing else, when everything else fails. Most of these were of our making, like going into rock. Mm -hmm. And um, so, but you know, she was, she was unfortunately tarnished by the Democratic Party. They can do that when they don't like you. I personally have seen that. Um, they've done it to me and others. Um, so, you know, she's a tough, she's a tough cookie. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, of course, cut her teeth on the consumer finance uh, agency, and um, she, you know she was very viable there for a while, and then you know things turned on her when I think she couldn't explain exactly how much money it was going to cost to do her Medicare for all, and I think you know people saw that. So I think authenticity, or at least if you're going to project yourself as an expert, you probably need to really have all the details. And she seemed to have details on everything except for that one. But I don't know if it's only because she kind of adopted it from Bernie or what have you. Um, uh, Kamala, um, I know her very well because I ran against her for the U.S. Senate. I came in second. She came in first. Um, you know, I just think that people, 
she didn't have the experience of Washington D.C. She didn't have a lot of the of, uh, of, of the experience that that it it took to be on that stage at some point. So, but I think we'll see her come back later. So, why did all these women not make it through a Democratic primary or even to the end of the Democratic Party primary or to the convention? Um, and some of it is just financing. Financing is a very difficult thing now. Um, you know, Amy didn't have the financing. She didn't have it. Kamala, because she came from a large state like California with lots of donors had it in the beginning, but she couldn't do the follow through, so she didn't get the money. Um, Elizabeth Warren had it in the beginning, and she kind of fell behind in it, and, you know, and that was the end of that. Tulsi never had it. Um, you know, she had some donors, but she really didn't have the oomph of money that it takes. Um, so I, 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 you know, it's a lot of things. It's money. Most of the donors tend to be men, believe it or not. That's what I've seen. Men tend to give to men. They don't tend to give to women. Women tend to give less if they do give. Um, so that the money was one, was one piece. Um, certainly all of these had pretty much an amount of experience behind them so we can't say it was an experience i think there was a, a bit of sexism or something going on um in the way that women are covered in the way that they're taken seriously or not i mean i i thought it was very interesting when amy turned to pete Buttigieg in a in in a debate and said are you calling me stupid or whatever it was that she said That's you right. call me dumb i mean because you don't think it's important, but it's that condescending sort of feel that Anne's saying yes, right? That sometimes we would walk into rooms and we would say something and you could just hear it in their voice or you could see it in the tilts of their head. They were just like so discounting us. And I think it continues whether we like it or not. Well, I do want to comment on the on the primary because it's been so interesting. Uh, and quite frankly, you have to look at the electorate. Because the electorate is how those primaries, how people got eliminated. When Elizabeth Warren didn't get any support in any state. So was it her message? You know, was it her demeanor? Was she angry? She seemed to be angry a lot. Um, so there's that. Um, certainly the Mike Bloomberg thing was another element that, that came in and came out quickly after $600 million was spent. But it's interesting to me how Joe Biden did so poorly in those first number of uh, the caucus, Iowa caucus in New Hampshire. And then all of a sudden, Klobuchar and Buttigieg dropped out. They supported him. Today I see Cory Booker supported him. Yesterday Kamala Harris supported him. And you think to yourself, someone is behind the scenes making all of this happen. And Again, I do think, not that I support Bernie Sanders or I agree with Bernie Sanders, but I do feel like I just have this sense he's getting pushed out because they don't think he's electable with some of his policies. But at the end of the day, all of this happened because of what the voters in Iowa did. Of course, there was a snafu there, but in New Hampshire. And, um, you know, why why didn't the voters go for someone, and I do believe she still is, in um, okay. uh, Tulsi Gabbard, that she's she's putting forth a reasonable position and it's you know similar to maybe because it's similar to the president's we can't as a nation engage in all of these useless wars where our young people get killed or maimed and so but she just couldn't get traction klobuchar most reasonable person in the senate uh 
accomplished, smart, easy to work with, easy to work with, and she couldn't get traction. And you say, why? Is the electorate that fickle that they want someone who's screaming and yelling, or it's got offering some crazy um, deals that are never going to happen? I mean, frankly, but so there's it's it's an interesting. It certainly will be interesting tomorrow. When we have the mini Super Tuesday. It's a little discouraging to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's a little discouraging, but you know what? Hey, this time we had women on stage, uh, you know, other than just Hillary, you know what I mean? We we had several women on stage at one point, so we just have to keep going at it. I mean, that's what we have to do, and the more the merrier and the harder we go, and at some point we're going to break that. But it is troubling. I'll just add this one point that the Democratic Party was able to eliminate Tulsi Gabbard from this the March 15th debate. You know, she hasn't dropped out, and she belongs on that stage. That's a great point. We'll be keeping close watch on the 2020 race. Loretta, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining me on Inside the FLX. Thank you. Thank you very much. From WEOS, Finger Lakes Public Radio Station in Geneva, I'm Gabriel Pachazio, and this is Inside the Finger Lakes.